right, church, good job. Good job on that. It's, it's very rewarding to see God's people sharing God's love and God's generosity uh, for the glory of God. So great, great job uh, on that. And there's another one, another great story on, uh, on Christmas Eve as well. And then again next week. And let me also just say, hey, great job. But we have more people that are uh, signed up for this afternoon uh, to go and distribute to 3,000 families around the 828 uh, food boxes uh, that should last a week, so a phenomenal job on that. I know that makes for a long Sunday for a lot of you, but great, great job uh, on that. As a matter of fact, it's been cool to see there's hundreds and hundreds of stories. One story even this week when the food boxes got delivered uh, in a semi-truck uh, right out here. Uh, because of the supply chain stuff, there we had to get the food boxes. They actually came from Houston. And this guy pulled up in a semi, and Kurt McClure, who was the one there uh, doing the interview, he went out there and just started, uh, you know, talking with the guy, telling him where to put it. And the guy's like, hey, what is, what is, I don't even know what I've got in the back here. What, what have I got? And he started explaining about the big give. And this guy's a believer, and his name was Marlon, and he's sitting there. was like, man, I'm, I'm excited about what you all are doing. Before he even left the parking lot, he got on his phone and sponsored another family here in the A28. So it's, it's awesome to see. Uh, it's awesome to see the little parts of generosity that are they're doing that. And again, uh, we got a lot of folks watching from different places. Uh, special shout out to Marilyn and Wayne from Fort Myers, Florida. Randall, uh, the Randall Campbell family, I think from Clarksville, Tennessee. And then the Lindback family is from, and I thought it said Charlotte. It, uh, we looked it up. It's Charlotte. All right, North Carolina, wherever that is, man, glad that you uh, joined us online. Uh, go ahead and take your Bible and turn to the last book in the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation. That's where we're going to be, all right? So don't freak out. Hey, by the way, before we do that, uh, one of the little bits of business we have to do at the end of the year is, uh, and if you're a church, uh, if you're part of the, the Biltmore family, hopefully you got a uh, ministry budget that got sent to you via email. And then there was a Q&A session that was done uh, recently. If you had any questions, you can always get your questions answered. But based on our bylaws, we got to take a quick uh, vote. Those that are in favor of the 2022 proposed budget as presented by the finance team, why don't you just say a good hearty amen? All right, no's opposed. All right, if anybody at uh, Hendersonville or East or West or whoever said it just said no, take note of that because uh, uh, we're going to make sure they're tithing. All right, so here's where we are. We, uh, uh, we started in uh, Genesis way back in January, and here we are in December with just a few weeks left, and um, we're, going to, we're in the book of Revelation. All right, and by the way, if uh, on January the 9th, and I won't tell you what Bible book we'll be in, but it is basically a Bible book starting in January 9th that we'll be in for five or six or seven weeks. It's a book in your Bible on uh, love, marriage, sex, gender, and redemption. So if you want to figure out what book that is, that's January 9th. Uh, but right now, we're finishing up the year of the Bible, and the book of Revelation is where we are. And let me make a few cursory remarks about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is both intriguing and confusing at the same time. There's a ton of talk in here about everything from judgment to beasts to false prophets to large women to four horsemen to dragons to 666. It's a ton of typology, a ton of symbolism that has literal meanings, of course, but, and it's difficult. It's difficult to interpret. It, it definitely is. It is, without a doubt, the most difficult book in the Bible to understand, and so you've got to approach it with a great, great deal of humility. And by the way, on top of all of that stuff, you've got some terrible Christian movies that have made based on the book of Revelation that actually just confuse things even more. So despite all the confusion, despite all the symbolism, the main picture in here is clear. 
We're going to be in Revelation 4, but the very first sentence of the very first chapter in this book tells us what the whole book is about. It says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation there is the word apocalypso or apocalypse. It means the unveiling. It means it's the picture of like taking the cover off of what used to be covered and is no longer covered. And so kind of the dual purpose of this book, one of them is to take the cover off because before it's like we'd all we'd see is the humanity of Jesus, the Galilean peasant. And they're like, they're taking that cover off to say it's not the Galilean peasant that has been clothed in humanity only. It is also the Lord God and King. That's who it is. And then the second thing is they're going to unveil some things that are going to come. Now, again, people fight about all the earthly scenes in this book, and it's like, it means this, and it means this, but the focus of the book is not on the earthly scenes, it's actually on the heavenly scenes, and the heavenly scenes are super, super clear. You know what? It's about the fact that Jesus Christ is the main component in all of human history, and so the whole book is about him, and one of the things it's trying to tell us is this. It's trying to unveil some things, present realities that we do not see. Just like you are both a physical person and a spiritual person. You're a physical person, you can see your body, but you're also a spiritual person. You have a soul that you cannot see. That's how sometimes that you can be physically not tired, but your soul depleted and you just feel so worn out. And the Bible teaches there's a physical realm that you can see and there's a spiritual realm that you cannot see. It's not any less real, it's just that you and I cannot see it. Now, I know before I even get any further into the message, some of you are like, I'm not sure I believe that. And I would just, you're, you're like, you're naive. If you think there's like this, if I can't see it, I won't believe it. And I would just say that you are naive. If you actually think that all those problems in your marriage are solely because you are not an awesome communicator, I would say you are naive. If you think all those issues that your prodigal won't come home are solely because she has a bad friend group, I would say you are naive. I would say the fact that if you're saying the only reason I can't break this addiction is because I've just got certain chemical imbalances, I would say then you are naive. And so what I'm going to show you is the fact that behind the visible, there's a lot of things we do not see that have a tremendous impact on us. And part of the book of Revelation is to unveil what's actually behind the scene. And so let me, let me paint one picture for you, you know, just listen for this story for what it means. So this past summer, uh, Ju- I can't remember when it was, I think it was July maybe, I got a cool invitation to go preach at a church out in California called Saddleback. I was off that Sunday anyway, so I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go preach at Saddleback. Now, we don't do church exactly like them, but it's like, hey, it's a cool opportunity. I respect their pastor. Again, we don't do things exactly like them, but a lot of respect. And so Lori couldn't go with me, so I took one of our worship pastors, or a guy named Logan. And so I take him out there with me, and uh, before we went out on that trip, the guy that was setting up the agenda, he said, here's what you're going to do. You're gonna pre- you'll preach two services Saturday night and then two Sunday morning. But after the services on Saturday night, uh, Pastor Rick, will, you guys will go have dinner, and then he, of course, and, he, and here's the text. He says, of course, you want to go see his library, and da-da-da-da. And I actually remember thinking, sure, that's what I want to fly to California is to see some guy's books. That's really what I want to do, sarcastically. But all that being said, so we get out there, we do the two Saturday night, uh, Saturday night services, and then we go have dinner. And it's a pretty plain office with just, you know, great food and all that stuff. But then uh, Pastor Rick, basically, he takes this book, and you would expect it was the Purpose Driven Life book, of course, but he takes the Purpose Driven Life book, and he says, Logan, sometimes, sometimes one chapter, one book can open up a whole new world. And what he did, he, he hands the book to Logan, and Logan opened up the book, and there's like a, it's like a garage door opener. It's basically a button. Okay, Logan, he's like, push that button. He pushes the button 
And I'm, I'm telling you, it's true. This entire, there was like a, because there was maybe one bookcase. And it wasn't, I was like, you know, I got more books than that and, uh, initially. And then this, he pushes that button and that whole wall goes, and it moves. That's what was in the, that was what was behind the wall. Now that, it doesn't even do it justice. But in that library, that's like, that's like 40,000 square feet of books and stuff from heads of state, signed copies of all these commentaries from guys like Spurgeon and Moody and for like a church history geek. I was like geeking out in that whole thing. And the whole point was, you know what? Behind what I thought was plain and vanilla and something I could understand, if I got behind it, I could actually see there was so much more than I could really see. And so John pulls back the veil both for Jesus does it for John and he does it for you. Because the book of Revelation, the context, is a difficult time for John. John has been exiled to an island, a penal colony, think Alcatraz. He'd been put out there. The Roman and Jewish authorities were trying to arrest people that were Christian. He used to be on the inner circle with Jesus, but it's probably been a good 60 years since he's actually seen Jesus. All the other disciples have been martyred He's on this island living in some cave and then God comes to him and reminds him what you and I need to be reminded of and that is the fact that there's still someone on the throne. So let me read the text and we're gonna go through 11 verses and then I'm gonna make two basic points, all right? So here it is. Revelation chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. I stop there for one second. The book of Revelation can be outlined by basically there's four visions that John has. All right, there's one, chapter one, two, and three is like vision number one. Chapter four begins vision number two, and that goes to like chapter 17. Then you have a third one, like 18 to 20, and then like 20 to 22 is the the fourth and final vision. And so when he's starting this, what he's saying is, he goes, I want to show you something that even though you're not home, I want you to see that you have a home waiting for you. I mean, some of you, think about technology nowadays that John obviously didn't have. Some of you all have those systems like a ring doorbell. And what a ring doorbell does is you can be at your work or you can be somewhere else And then you can, based on your phone, you can look and you can see, hey, somebody's at my home. This is how my home is doing, even though I'm not at home. And so what Jesus is trying to show John is, John, even though you're not at home, I'm going to show you what your home is like. And if you're a Christ follower, this is not your home, all right? That is your home. And he's trying to remind us, listen, this is not your home. This is not the place you will be forever. Let me give you a glimpse. Let me give you a quick tour of what your home will be like. And so let me remind you again. John's primary concern is not the how and the when, which everybody gets down in the weeds about. It's not the how. When's he coming back? All right. It's not, it's not the how. It's not the when. It's the who and the why. That's what you got to understand. The book of Revelation is not about a calendar. It's more about, okay, again, everybody fights about the calendar part, but the whole focus is on the heavenly scene saying, this is what it's like. And so here's, what he, here's how the story goes. Verse two says, and at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Again, this is like a tour guide. This is a tour guide of worship services in heaven. 
The way I kind of read this in a somewhat of a linear fashion, because you can read it in a linear fashion or you can read it in a vertical fashion and both are okay, all right? It's kind of like the Western church, we tend to read it, you know, linearly, and yet the Eastern church, they kind of read it top to bottom. They kind of read it from, you know, what heavenly scenes to earthly scenes, back and forth and back. We read it this way and both are okay. But when you look at it this way, it's the idea of like, you know what? It's confusing in a lot of these things, but he's trying to say, I want to go from the throne room, which is what the whole focus is. That's probably the easiest way to remember the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, the word throne is used like 49 times. That is like the primary, it's like, what's the book about? It's about a throne in heaven. The way I would read this is this is where some of your loved ones who have gone and they've died in the Lord, this is a lot of what's going on here. And so he goes to this throne, and again, throne is used 11 times here, and all power is coming from the throne, and all praise is going to the throne, and it simply says that he was seated. He was seated on a throne. Now, why would he be seated on the throne? Because he's not sweating in any way. He's not pacing back and forth trying to figure out what's going to go on. He's not anxious. He's not wiping the sweat off of his brow. He is in repose because he's sovereign. That's what the throne means. And he's trying to say, John, you are all worked up because of what Caesar is doing. And he's like, there's going to be a day when people will name their dogs after Caesar. They'll name like inexpensive pizza after Caesar and his name will be gone. You don't think I can handle your cancer? You don't think I can handle your marriage issues? You don't think I can handle your health issues? Of course I can. And so uh, verse 3 says, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian again John is struggling to describe what he's seeing. You'll see a bunch of phrases in here that kind of are, that talk about that. Like verse two, he says, I heard a voice like a trumpet. He didn't say I heard a trumpet. He said, I heard a voice like a trumpet. He didn't know, it's like it's authoritative and it was clear. And here he says, I saw something and it kind of looked like, and that's kind of, it kind of had the appearance of Jasper. Jasper's like crystal. It's kind of like you and I might look at it as like diamonds. You got Cornelian and that's like, brownish red kind of color and it's around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. In other words, it's like, it's like a rainbow, but it's not like a rainbow. It's green. When's the last time you saw an emerald rainbow, right? You didn't see that. He's like, it's like a rainbow, but it's green. And I'm, I'm not really sure how to, how to, how to say this, but it's like amazing. And then in verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones. So you got like a big throne and then you got like these little smaller thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. Now stop there for a second. People, um, you got to have some humility with the book of Revelation. But it seems that it's fairly clear that these 24, because they go like, this is what it means, this is what it means. Without going into the weeds, it seems like these 24 would probably be representative of humanity and the Christians in general. Because most people would say, when you kind of dig all in there, it's kind of probably representative of like the 12 tribes of Israel on one hand, sort of like the Old Testament, and then the 12 apostles in the New Testament combined as 24, kind of like representative of God's work with mankind. And so this would be kind of like just think mankind, just think people around the throne. And here's what... Uh, Verse five says, and from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. That's probably symbolic of like judgment coming because the book turns on that here in just a couple of chapters. Which were the seven spirits of God. And all right, don't freak out on verse six and seven. And it says, because before the throne there was added, 
as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. You're like, what is that, Pastor? What is that, Pastor? Like after a lot of study and a lot of work and a lot of prayer, I have no idea what that is. I no idea. I was like, I don't know. I mean, they got, I don't know. I don't know. But then they actually say, well, here's kind of what it's like. And again, he's struggling. He's like trying to put into words what an infinite, holy, almighty God looks like and what heaven looks like. He's like, I can't do it, but it's like this and it's like this. And here's what he says in verse seven. The first living creature was like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Probably the best, the best guess that I would have is those are representative of just creation as a whole. All right, the lion is like, you know, like the bravest. The ox is like the strongest. And, you know, mankind is like the wisest. And, you know, the eagle is like the swiftest. I mean, that's the best, that's the best I got. But the Bible does say, like Romans 8, it says, you know what? Creation groans waiting for the redemption. All right, there's a sense in which the curse hurt the earth, hurt creation. And then there'll be a day when that's not the case, when God remakes it. Verse 8 says, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, just uh, if you need a Bible study, uh, when the Bible repeats something three times, there's not a really a way for them to put an exclamation point and to say, like, it's really holy. So what they'll do is they'll repeat something and normally, if they repeat something twice, like, you know, the man fell in a, if you were to say this, like this massive pit, you would say he fell in a pit pit, all right? And in this case, the idea of holy, which is used of God only in this regard, it's used three times. It's used here in Isaiah 6, and it's used here in Revelation 4. He's holy, he's holy, he's holy. He's like, it's, he's not like you. It's the word kadosh, which means, you know what? He's not like us in any way. He is not the top rung on the pyramid of mankind. He is unlike us in any way. He was before your grandma, before John the Baptist, before Isaiah, before Adam and Eve, before creation, before there was an earth, he already was. And he is, that's what's amazing. No matter what hell you're going through right now, it's like he is, he's such an awesome God. He can hold the whole world in his hand and yet he can hide your tears in a bottle. That's what kind of God he is. But he also said he's to come. Meaning when he comes a second time, it's not like the first time. First time he came wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The second time he's gonna come riding a white horse, making war on those who reject him. That's a different, that's a different deal. And so um, verse nine to 11, kind of finish it out. And then we'll make a couple of applications for us. Here's what it says. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, all right, so you got these four creatures. You're not exactly sure what that is, but I want you to see that their worship, their worship has an impact on, on the people. And the 24 elders, see, whenever that happens, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And this is great, they cast their crowns before the throne. It's kind of like, it's starting to dawn on them what they're about and how, it's just like, it doesn't feel right because crown is the idea of a reward. And they're like, before a holy God and God had given them these rewards and like, what am I doing with a crown on my head? It's like, get this thing off of me. 
And they actually use a word. It isn't just like, hey, we're just going to take it off and gently put it. It's like, get this off of me. I'm going to throw this off of me. It doesn't fit this situation at all. And then they start to say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things, and by your will, they existed and they were created. Our loved ones, you're like, what does a bunch of four-eyed creature, elder, what does that have to do with me? Came in here for something to help me get through Christmas. All right, here's the idea. Let me give you a couple. Number one is, whether you know it or not, whether you agree with it or not, is the fact of the matter is, no matter where you are on your spiritual pilgrimage, you are a worshiper. You are a worshiper. This is not just a religious thing. This is a human thing. You are a worshiper. Everybody in this room, everybody in Brevard, everybody in Hendersonville, everybody worships. It's what you were made to do. Colossians 1 says that you and I were made by God and for God. And here's what I can see by looking in the mirror, and here's what I can see by just observing life for 50 plus years, and that is this, is that if we don't worship the creator, then we worship the creation. If we don't worship the creator actively, then what we will do is we will put a substitute in there that is something that he has made. If we don't worship the giver, we begin to worship the gifts that the giver has made. And then everything starts to get out of balance when we do that because we're, you're like, I don't worship stuff, all right? All worship is is the idea of value. Worship is what I express value, that this is important to me. This person, this thing, this experience, this accolade, this whatever, worship is this matters most to me. This has the highest value in my life. This is what I've got to have in order to be happy that's what you worship. It's what you spend your time on, your money on, your affections on. That's what you worship. Now, it's often when we get them mixed up, it's usually not a bad thing. It's usually a good thing. We've made an ultimate thing, and then it enslaves us and starts to crash down on us. So in using this definition, and I'll prove it to you, the workaholic, the workaholic worships his job. Maybe he worships success and something a little deeper, but the workaholic worships his job. The greedy person worships his money. The addict worships that substance or that pleasure that that brings him for a brief amount of time. The helicopter parent, the one that never can ever let Junior out of their sight at all, they worship their kids. Didn't get a lot of amens on that, it's still true. All right, the, uh, and here's what you gotta remember is when you worship an unworthy object, the Bible calls that idolatry. And it is by far the number one sin in the Bible. It's not about some little wooden statue that's being worshiped over there in some jungle region you've never heard of. Idolatry is something, I'm gonna put something that has been created by God in the place of God, in my affections and in my time and in my attention and in my money, that's what that is called idolatry. And they disappoint us. They're awesome when they work right, but they're awful when they don't work right. And so uh, that's why he said commandment number one, commandment number one, there's one God. There's one God, that's commandment number one. Like, I'm taking 10 commandments and I'll boil the, all the law down to, number one, there's one God. Commandment number two, only worship that God. Just worship that God. If you do commandment number one and I do commandment number two, then we're not gonna have trouble with commandments three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. Because those have to do all with idolatry. The Bible actually says in the New Testament in John chapter four, it says the Father seeks worshipers and that throws people off a lot. In our society, people are like, man, what kind of God would have to demand and need worship? What kind of God is that? 
I don't mean to offend you unnecessarily, but if you're asking, you know, what kind of God demands worship from people, I'm just going to have to say you have very kindergarten thoughts about God. Because what you think is you're thinking of God as some exalted view or some exalted version of you and I. And God is not like that. God, again, is not the top rung on the human pyramid. He's unlike us in any way at all. If God is the creator of everything, who else would you have in worship? And by the way, you're like, what kind of God needs worship? Please hear me on this. This has been misunderstood a few times. God does not need worship. There's a difference between needing worship and deserving worship. Listen, God does not need your worship. God will be just fine tomorrow if you and I don't worship a lick today. Because God is an independent being. You and I are dependent. God doesn't need your worship. You need your worship. I need the worship. And so what you see in this scene is, is the fact that, like, this is, what, this is what you were made for. Now, again, we don't have a sermon on heaven. Heaven will be kind of like the online service on the 26th, and we'll talk a little bit about what actually is in heaven at the end of this book. Heaven is not just one big church service. Just understand that. Everything in heaven is worshipful. But understand, if you get this wrong, then everything else falls apart. Or to put it another way, a lot of times, and I've asked myself this sometimes, especially during the last 18 months. It's like, man, why is your soul so depleted? And if you don't understand the superfoods that God has given you for your soul, and all you know is the superfoods for your body, your soul will dry up quickly. The superfoods super foods are basically, you know, they get all the antioxidants out, they build muscle, all that kind of stuff. The superfoods for you, spiritually, it's the word of God and the worship of God. By the worship, I mean getting in the word and praying. But when I say worship, I'm using it in the all-encompassing time frame. It's like God wants you and I to worship. And why, why would I do that? It brings you closer to God. I mean, I can list benefits after benefit. Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Like, what am I going to find if I draw near to God? Man, I came into this church just because I heard you all were doing some cool stuff, and that's the only reason. You want to draw near to God? You're like, I feel distant from him. What am I going to find there? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that you can find help in your time of need. And just while I'm there, you got to understand the fact that there will be a day for every one of us where you will stand before God, and there will be a throne of grace or a throne of judgment. That's either going to be a good day or a very bad day. And if you repent and believe in Jesus, when you stand before God, you stand before a God of grace. That God, guess what? God put on Jesus what you and I deserved. The Bible says that he is your advocate. He's the one that comes alongside you and like, no, she's with me. She's with me. She's with me. Or it's a God of judgment. But if you're in Christ, the Bible says, come, come over here. If you're like, I feel far from God this morning. I feel far from God. Loved one, I say this as gently as I can. If you feel far from God, God has not moved. You've moved. Through whatever it is, the isolation of the pandemic, the rebellion over sin, pure stubbornness, whatever it is, if you're far from God this morning, it's your choice, not God's choice. And just as you moved away from him, you can make a choice. I'm gonna draw near to God uh, today. How do you do that? You're like, I got a mess. I have a need. Things are falling apart. Well, then draw near to God and worship. Another one, it builds my faith. Uh, it builds my faith. Here's what I found out in the last 18 months, because I've typically been more stoic, but here's, here's what I found in the last 18 months. It is so easy to go from, I don't know if you, 
Some of y'all are leaders in here, and, and I think you'll understand this maybe more than if, if you don't get that. Um, this has by far been the most uh, draining uh, deal ever, at least for me. I mean, everybody, there's always three little bears, right? You know, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's just right. It's whatever, I don't even like bears. Or whatever, you know, so, sorry, it is what it is. And so what you do is you go from hoping, you know, you're hoping, you're hoping. And if, you, and if that doesn't come true after a while, you know, it's like six months, seven months, and you get your hopes up, and then you go, you can either say, we've usually said you go from hoping to coping, but I found in the middle there is what, where I found myself, and that is moping around. Just moping. You know, it's like, man, it's like, you're just disappointed. I heard people say sometimes, like, God's never disappointed me. You're just a liar. Seriously, you, I mean, or you're just superficial. I'm not saying that God has disappointed you ultimately, but I'm saying, can you actually say there's never been a time when you really hoped God would do something and it didn't happen when you thought it would happen? If that's you, you're, you mean to, Congratulations, you're unlike the rest of us. You're certainly unlike the people in the Bible. There's places in the Bible, it's like, how long, O oh Lord? That's like one of the number one prayers in Psalms. How long, O oh Lord? How long will I not hear from you? You hadn't prayed that prayer? What you have to understand there is you gotta go back to worship. You gotta go back to what do I know? What do I know to be true? Part of the reason that we come to church is because all during the week, stuff piles up on our heart all during the week. It just piles up and unbelief piles up and hopelessness piles up and talk radio piles up and this TV person, and you get all this stuff piles up. And part of the reason you go to church is we come up and we wipe all that stuff off the table. It's like God is on his throne. God is on his throne. God has shown me mercy. You gotta understand that. And if you wait till Sunday and that's the only thing you do, you're gonna be in uncharted, dangerous territory. I'll give you an example. I'm gonna give you a couple personal, because personal worship flows into public worship. I was preparing this. I, mean, I, start, I usually start a sermon. I usually, I usually look at the text a bunch of times on Monday, do word studies on Wednesday afternoon, uh, uh, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday, like hit it hard and get every source I can possibly get and then I write it on Thursday. All right, so Thursday's like close the door, get your tail in the chair and get it on paper, all right? That's what I try to do. And so I'm halfway through this thing and I think it's, I think it's Wednesday evening, maybe it's Tuesday evening, I can't remember. And I was, you found, I found myself super anxious, super irritable, super irritable. And I go to the gym and I'm working out and one of the best things that happened was not just working out, this song came on by David Crowder. I don't know if you ever heard this song. This song by David Crowder, you're like, I don't like Crowder, I don't care. I mean, you know, Crowder's good. He looks like a praying mantis, but he is like, he's got some great stuff. And uh, there's this song, I hadn't heard it before. I kind of vaguely heard it, but I'm like, where am I? But man, I turned it up and turned it up and turned it up and I left change. It's called Good God Almighty. Good God Almighty. Good God Almighty. And here's what it kept saying. There's this little chorus, they kind of go back and forth and they kind of go, he goes, you know, tell me. Tell him, is he good? And then it's like this choir is like, he is good. Is he God? He is God. And then it's like, he's good, God Almighty. And I'm sitting there doing curls. I'm like, yeah, he's good, God Almighty. And I left there changed. Why? Because I worshiped. I worshiped. Now, what changed into what I was fretting over? Nothing. My faith changed. My belief changed. That song you sang a little while ago, I Believe. That's, that, that had another season. You know the reason I love that song so much? And we don't always do songs I love. We do some songs I don't like, just so you know. But 
Um, Psalm 27, 13 says, it's based on Psalm 27, 13, that I believe I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so, you know, the basically songs, if they're done right, are either prayers to God or scripture from God. The best songs. Some of you all, uh, when you heard that song, Mercy, that was, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to win at East Asheville. I'll tell you here at Arden, there's something, there's connective tissue to that song because it, it just it talks about the gospel. It talks about this is what I deserved, but this is what God has given. If you remember I said last week, grace is what God gives us that we don't deserve, but mercy is what God doesn't give us that we do deserve. And so when you sing a song like mercy, I deserve to be six feet under and all those awesome things right there. All of a sudden, if you're tuned in, if you're actually engaging in worship, what happens? You start to think through your testimony and what God has done for you and what God has not done to you and the way that Jesus took your shame and your condemnation and all these things start to flow. So if you walked in here with a bunch of shame, because you know what, you're gonna fail. And when you fail and you have this shame, the enemy's like, you ought to be ashamed. You can't be a worshiper. And then all of a sudden you start to worship because of what Jesus has done, which by the way, we sing very few, if any, songs about what you're gonna do. I don't know if you've noticed that over the years, but we've gone from songs that we're gonna do, we're gonna do this and we're gonna fly like an eagle. We don't sing songs like that anymore. You know why? Because when we, I'm gonna fly like an eagle. And then on Tuesday we crash and burn. We're like, well, I guess it's not true. We sing songs about what God has done. What God is now, there's a response to that, but what has God done? Because that's not gonna change. That you don't have condemnation so that you can come in here and you can worship and all that stuff that the all the whispers is what I call them. The whispers start to go talk and talk, and you've blown it for the tenth time. But you know what? I can run to God. You know why? Because He's merciful. All right, so here's what we gotta do. Let's take a few minutes and let's go. We're gonna practice how do we do this. So the only way I need to know how to do this is this is gonna be. Very practical, but I see all of this stuff going on in Revelation 4, and I'll point them out to you. Talking about how do you elevate, and I'm going to push you out of your comfort zone. How do you elevate your personal worship within a corporate context? All right, how do you do that? Now, in verse 10 of this text is the first time the word worship is used in the chapter, and here's what the word means. It's a pretty common word. This used in the Bible often about worship. It means to adore or to kiss or to fall prostrate before. And what you see is you see God, you see revelation and response, revelation and response. That's what worship is. God reveals, this is what I'm like. This is what I've done. And then you and I respond. That's the worship rhythm that you see. This is what God, and that's why what should happen is the more you mature in the Lord, the better worshiper you ought to be. Actually, that's actually usually not true has been my experience. My experience is oftentimes, the older we are in the Lord, even though we know more, our worship kind of gets more subdued and more self-conscious. And I don't want to know people, hey, keep your hands inside the roller coaster. Let's not get crazy, all right? That's what is at least been my observance. So when you do this, let me give you a couple of thoughts. First of all, as a third one, come to the throne of grace. In the past, the worshipers had to approach God through ritual, observances, and sacrifices. And in Christ, Jesus was the sacrifice for our sin. Chapter five actually goes with chapter four. Chapter four is all about the holiness of God, the otherness of God, that, man, how can I approach a holy God? And then chapter five is the way you approach a holy God is through Jesus, and that's the way you worship. Your first act of true worship is repentance and faith in Jesus. 
So if you're just religious, you really can't technically worship because you're just like worshiping based on your own standing. But if you're a Christ follower, you're coming through the door that Jesus has provided. And so for you, you got to make sure that has there been a time where I'm like, you know what? You died on the cross for my sin, not just the sin, but my sin. And it counted for me. All right, if you done that, that's your first act of worship. But then you can go to him over and over and over again because that's what happens. You know what? That, that was my sin, but now I can run to you instead of run from you. And that'll make, make a difference in your worship. So here's my challenge. Listen to me. I'm going to push on a little bit. And I'm pushing on me. When I say worship wholeheartedly, I'm not talking about a specific action for you to take. I tried to use the term precisely because wholeheartedly describes what you see in Revelation 4. If you were to read Revelation 4 all by yourself, the last word you would use to describe Revelation chapter 4 is apathetic or casual. You wouldn't. And so wholeheartedly describes what it is when you are into something. If you're an athlete and it's like, man, they gave all of their heart, what that means is you laid it on the field. That's what it means. If you give everything at your job, whether that's a welder or whatever, you know what? I'm giving everything I got. Wholeheartedly just simply means I'm taking my heart and I'm putting it all into my mind's attention, my heart's affection is gonna be focused on God. And so here's a couple of thoughts when you talk about, because worship is again our response based on what God has done and what God has revealed. And uh, some of you all kind of like, well, I don't want you to, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do something. I feel fake because I don't feel, I don't feel like doing that. I'm having a tough time. And I want to gently say, listen, I love you. I love you. I love you. But the Bible commands us to worship. It commands us to worship regardless of how you feel. It Because it's not about how your circumstances are. It's what you know to be true about God. Please hear me on that. Worship is your response to what you know to be true about God, not how your circumstances are going currently. The amazing thing that God sometimes does, though, is as we obey him in worship, remember what I said at the start? You're both a body and a soul. Dichotomous, maybe trichotomous, but you're at least dichotomous. That is, your soul affects your body, your body affects your soul. And so sometimes when we fully engage in worship, God is so gracious and so good that you might have come in here feeling horrible and sad and anxious and all and irritable and angry, but you begin to worship God and you begin to talk about the mercy of God and that you believe in these, and all of a sudden God begins to change you. And sometimes God changes other people and sometimes God changes you with your worship. You do understand that. Your worship during difficult times is like the number one witness to a watching world. I mean, anybody can praise God and sing hallelujah when you win the lottery or everything's going awesome in your marriage or the, everything's going great. When a watching world, and sometimes those are watching kids, they're watching, how does mama act when things are not going well? When the job lays her off. But it oftentimes changes you. And what's amazing is when you engage, what is not maybe happening around you all of a sudden starts to happen in you. And so here's some of the commands when you just look at the Psalms, and this happens all the time, where the psalmist starts off one way, misery, coping, and moping. 
And then he starts to praise God, and by the end of the psalm, he's like a different person. But here's just some of the things just in the psalms that you were commanded to do. All right, raise your hands in worship. I know some of you are like, I'm uncomfortable doing that. I don't want to be manipulative or anything, but it's like, listen, Jesus hung on a cross for you. Wasn't comfortable. The question is, what? the reason our worship is not great, the reason my worship is not great, the reason your worship is not great is because you don't believe there's a great God. Truth of the matter. Because if you believe there's a great God, you wouldn't care. It's like comfortable. I don't care about comfortable. You, so raise your hands is one of them. I'm going to push you on that one. Sing. Shout. In other words, volume actually is good. God likes volume. Uh, clap. The song we're going to sing is not a big clapping song. Dance. I've seen some of you dance, just don't do it today, okay? So, uh, but here's another one, uh, bow, bow's good, bow's great. And uh, what happens again in the Psalms is uh, he starts off by like, God has done this, and he starts to praise God, and by the end, because what is he doing? He's declaring not what he feels, he's declaring his faith. This is, that's, that's the key thing. It's like your worship is not declaring how you feel that day. That's why our worship leaders will never, and I'm so glad we got phenomenal ones, they will never say, how are y'all feeling today? As if that is the barometer for how we're going to worship an almighty risen God. Is that what we're gonna, no, it's not how we're gonna do it. It doesn't matter how we feel. It matters how awesome God is. 